Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. We're continuing in a lesson uh, that we began uh, two weeks ago. Uh, we was here, of course, last week on Mother's Day, but the week prior to that, we started this lesson. And uh, I know that may seem uh, for some like it's been four weeks ago. Many of you probably don't realize it's Sunday today. Uh, but uh, maybe if it wasn't for uh, the online feed, you'd just be totally lost what day it was. And that's very easy to do during these times. I know that uh, my wife or I or even our children at different times, we've kind of gotten mixed up about what day it was and so on and so forth i know there's a little bit of a sense of normalcy coming back to some people's lives and toyota back in swing and so that affects some of the members here of our church and that may help you keep track of days i hope so lord you sleep on the day that you should be going to work that might not that might not sort out too well uh, but nonetheless hebrews chapter 13 and we're going to read verse number 17 our lesson that we started two weeks ago was about your pastors and leaders. We spent some time two weeks ago uh, concerning the leadership of our world and governing officials and such. And of course, again, this is a discipleship series that as we become new babes in Christ Jesus, uh, still having a respect and a reverence for those that are in authority. Uh, again, when some come to the Lord, that's an aspect of their life that maybe has not been shined on uh, through their normal upbringing. Uh, a lot of people have no respect for their mother or father, disrespect sometimes because mom and dad was whatever. But the Bible says that we honor, you know, our parents, regardless of whether we agree with them. You can agree with some, you can honor someone without agreeing with someone. Okay. And so, uh, anyway, we looked at that two weeks ago. Today, we're going to continue to look at some of the, the hierarchy, if you want to call it that, or some of the uh, government that Christ has even ordained within uh, the church, within, within the body of Christ. And so Hebrews 13, verse 17, the Bible says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you amen that will be our springboard to go from today let's pray lord jesus i come to you this morning we need you god to touch our hearts and our minds afresh god by your word god give us instruction lord jesus today and Lord, I pray, God, that we take it to heart, Lord, and to mind, that we would walk, Lord, the footsteps, Lord, that you have laid before us. God, I pray, oh, Lord, as we continue to grow as Christians and help us, God, not to forget, Lord, God, our, our reference points and our bases, Lord Jesus, that you provided in the Scripture. In the name of Jesus Christ that I pray, amen and amen. God bless you this morning in Jesus' name. And so just as real just as real as uh, the government that is stationed within our land, in our states and cities and counties, uh, God has a governmental system as well, uh, a governmental system within the body of Christ. And the way in which he governs his church is perhaps in a very unique manner, uh, but it is no less effective uh, than the way that the natural world is governed as, as well. Uh, God's church, uh, for one thing, concerning us, the church body, and the governments that we find in the world, God's church is, is not a democracy. It's not a government by the majority. Uh, it's not a monarchy. It's not a government of a, of a royal family or anything like that. It's not a government that's uh, devised up by, you know, all the senior citizens or the elder class, or if you would rather be called the mature adults, okay? Uh, it's not a government by anything of those matters. God's church is a theocracy. It's a theocracy. It is a God-governed body 
of people embody a believers and he has undoubtedly given us different offices within the church amen that he is um, given if you will authority to because remember from romans that all of the authority amen that any government whether it's secular or religious amen uh, is given in the even the body of christ that authority comes from the lord and so we're talking about theocracy whenever we speak about the church and so uh, we looked at a little bit even i think it was two weeks ago uh, concerning moses and aaron and also concerning uh, samuel that they had their offices or their positions uh, in the nation of Israel, for instance, as high priests and prophet and deliverer and such. Those were all positions that God had put them in, that God had placed them in. And with the position also came then a certain level of authority within the dynamic of the nation, within the dynamic of the church. Uh, the people that God chooses for this, it's not necessarily that they, uh, it is their talents or their abilities or their giftings uh, is the reason why he chooses them. Uh, God many times has a choice that goes beyond giftings and talents and abilities uh, because God can give people uh, and teach them some things uh, maybe they didn't have when they were first called to a position or a place. For instance, I can tell you right now that there's probably the majority, if not all, uh, pastors that whenever they were called, they probably, to the position of a pastor, probably felt very much so inadequate. Amen. And, and no doubt, in many terms, I feel like I still am. But inadequate to serve in that position or place but God teaches and God gives some instruction and you find some giftings and abilities that he brings to the surface after he's put you in that place and so God has ordained ministries and so he's chosen them he selected them by his divine will the Bible says in Psalm 75 and verse number six just as a disclaimer today, I'd really like to get through the rest of this, but it may not happen. But nonetheless, uh, Psalm 75 and verse 6, the Bible says, For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, verse 7, but God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up the other. In other words, what the psalmist is conveying to us is that promotion comes from nowhere else but God. All right, God, God brings one up. I believe in the book of Jeremiah, it talks about he brings one up and he pulls one down. He sets people in places and positions. It was God who chose Moses, right? And he was what? Uh, to his own admission, the tongue-tied, unable to speak, right? Shepherd uh, who argued with God in, in certain ways that he was unqualified for what God was calling him to. God chose David one of the most uh, uh, popular kings of the Old Testament, David as the king of Israel. And yet David had some other brothers of his own that even according to the eyes of the prophet Samuel, outwardly appeared to be better qualified or more suited in appearance as a king. That's the reason why when Samuel went to anoint uh, one of those boys to be king, he came to Eliab, the eldest, I believe it was, and the Lord spoke to him and said, no, that's not the one. Don't look at the height or his appearance or his stature. God sees what? The heart, the Scripture says. He knows the very intents of the heart. And so God even overlooked uh, what was Esau in the Old Testament who was a, a cunning hunter, the Scripture says, and he chose a Jacob who in the beginning of his life was the supplanter, the conniving one, a plain man, the Bible said, who lived in tents. God chose Gideon, who when the angel of the Lord found him was sifting wheat, the Bible says, by the wine press. The literal interpretation is in the wine press, meaning he was trying to hide from the Midianites of that time. So it was a cowardly type of function of him threshing wheat. But God says, I want you uh, to help be a deliverer for the children of Israel. God chose Peter. We know the personality of the impulsiveness of Peter. And many would even uh, had underscored Peter as being, and those that fished, ignorant fishermen. They even called them that sometimes in Scripture. But God chose him. God chose Saul of Tarsus, who had become known as Paul. He chose who was a persecutor of the church, right? Uh, to become a very great uh, player within the New Testament scripture and a writer of about two-thirds or so of the New Testament scripture. And so this God choosing, putting in position, putting in places of authority and influence is God's business. 
is God's business. Uh, and you say, well, Brother McGee, there's times that we've had votes and there's organizations we have votes. That's true. But even the scripture conveys to us that when there's the casting of the lots or voting, if you will, that the whole disposal thereof is of the Lord. He uses, if you will, men in those venues. Amen. But the whole disposal thereof is of the Lord. And so each of those men that I spoke to you, God chose Moses and David. They all had their own set of imperfections. They all had their own set of failings. And yet, nonetheless, God called them. And so God doesn't, listen, God doesn't call perfect people. Right? God doesn't call perfect people. For one, there's none that can be found. But God, God uses our imperfections, even our weaknesses, amen, to showcase his own personal glory. Because if you ever scratched your head and, and seen someone in leadership said, I just... I, I don't even understand how uh, what comes about from their leadership comes about as it does because this, this, and this is against them. Well, you know what that does? That doesn't then underscore the man as much as it does the God of the man. And God is interested in his own glory. He's not going to share his glory with another. The Bible says that no flesh shall glory in his presence. And so each of these though, people become successful leaders in the kingdom of God like God had planned. And so God appoints ministers. He appoints pastors and teachers and different roles and divisions of ministry within his body. And they do not they do not, this is important, uh, their role and responsibility is not to preach and to teach and to administrate or govern, if you will, just to please the people, okay? Betraying maybe what popular opinion of even society and religious society may be today. God doesn't put people in those positions just for the purpose of tickling ears, all right? And placating, if you will, people. God's ministers and government is there to please God. To please God. Uh, in essence, and uh, right now, been speaking to a mostly empty building. Regardless, you always have an audience of one. And that's God. Even if the building is filled, if it's a conference or camp meeting, you really always have an audience of one, and that's God. We must be pleasing unto the Lord. Galatians speaks to us about, uh, he questions and poses the questions the Apostle Paul does. He says, <clears throat> are you going to seek to please men? He said, if you seek to please men, he said, you will not be a servant of Christ. In other words, you won't be a servant of the Lord if that's all that you seek to do. But what we find even in Scripture that holds true, that if we will seek to please God, uh, there are many times that you will also garner the favor of men. We see that in the life of Jesus Christ himself. The Bible speaks of him, that he increased in, in wisdom and he grew in stature. And the Bible says that he found favor with God. The placement comes first and with man. And so that's what we should seek. And so we want, we want the, the, the uh, endorsement, if you will, of heaven. And that makes sense because this, this bride that the church is or this body that the church is, uh, you know, compared to, Jesus Christ is the head of this body. He is the groom of this bride. And so the Bible says, for instance, in Colossians 1 and verse 18, and he, and that's speaking of Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, all right? And so we're the body of Christ, but ultimately it all's about him. That's the reason why we often say when we come to church services, our songs need to be concerning him, right? Our worship isn't about getting the attention of any, 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 anyone saying, hey, look over here, I got my hand raised, glory, hallelujah. No, it's about giving honor unto him. Everything should be pointing towards and directing toward the Lord. Whenever he spoke to us, even in the word of the Lord, just as saints or disciples or people he said let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works but what glorify you no but glorify your father which is in heaven and so the church is the body of Christ and every member needs to be an active member a vital they are a vital part of the body of Jesus Christ here on the earth and and Christ is so tethered to his body all right 
He's so tethered to his body that, for instance, in, in Acts 8 and 9, when, when Saul, we read even prior to that, was going about persecuting the church, and the Lord met him on the Damascus Road, and he said unto Saul, he said, Why persecutest thou me? Yet Saul's going around persecuting the church, right? Because the church is his body. This is why are you persecuting me? They are so closely tethered together. And so we are part of this body of Christ. The Bible says that in 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And so, and we've looked at this several times, but we're going to look at it again. A body has all these members or all these parts that provide different functions uh, that are beneficial to the body. And so we have different members. We have different Offices. There are different roles and positions within the body of Christ. The Bible says in Romans 12, verses 4 and 5, For as we have many members in one body, and all members, here it is, all members have not the same office, right? I mean, it would be a little peculiar just to see a, a body full of thumbs. Now, that's an image to behold in your mind's eye. But it, it would be peculiar, nor would it really be able to function like it was intended to function. So all members have not the same office. So we being many are one body in Christ. And every one members one of another. Look also, if you will, very quickly, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I want to read with verse number 18 starting. The Bible says, but now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body. This is important as it hath pleased him. That would have been a good word for Dathan and Abiram and Korah, Moses. And that's really what he was trying to convey. God has done this according to his pleasing. It says, if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members? So he's doing a little contrast. If they were one member, what's a, it's, that doesn't compose a body. There are many members, but yet one body and so jesus christ is the head we are his body there are different functions different roles uh different positions and places within this body and he has set them all in their position because in a way that pleases him he's chose some to lead and some to be administrative and some to govern and some to teach and some to preach and uh, the list could go on and on of all of the different divisions within the body and the authority and the government and what's delegated and what responsibilities or privileges for that matter are extended throughout the body and it's all as it pleases him and some of those things that he has set in the body is what we read of in Ephesians chapter number four some have called it the five-fold ministry others wish to call it the four-fold putting pastor and teacher together. Uh, nonetheless, we're going to refer to it as the five-fold ministry today that's found in Ephesians 4. Uh, this operation, administration, if you will, that God has within the government of the church. He says in verse 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, when we talk about these five folds or these five divisions, each of these are distinct in their own right, and they have their own set of responsibilities and operations and gifts and unique, if you will, in their own right. Whenever you talk about an, an apostle, particularly in Jesus' day, an apostle was literally a sent one, something, someone that was sent by the Lord with a specific message, with a specific commission, and we see them uh, throughout the New Testament Scripture, these sent ones with a message, with a commission by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, most of us are probably familiar with the word apostle and the 12 original apostles in the New Testament Scripture. That, in part, is where we get the apostolic faith, all right, that we continue to teach, we continue to propagate the message of the apostles and the doctrines of the apostles, which they received from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Lord commissioned them even after his ascension to go into all the world. And they are, they are some of the foundational stones, if you will, of the creation of the churches throughout the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, whenever Judas 
right? Judas went and hung himself. The Bible says his bowels uh, just busted open on the ground even. Uh, that Judas, he left the, the 12 and they in the book of Acts, starting the first chapter, had to come to a decision on adding another apostle or disciple to the group of their 12. And they had some criteria that an individual had to witness the baptism of, of Jesus and uh, up until the ascension of Jesus and that they had to be a witness of his resurrection. And ultimately they had to be chosen by God. And so they cast that lot, of course, the whole disposal thereof, the Bible says, belonging to God, and they chose someone. There are still, again, I think this is important, there are still modern-day apostles. There are still modern-day apostles. We said, Brother McGee, they haven't witnessed the baptism of Jesus or his resurrection. Well, let's think about it in New Testament means. If they've been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and are filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, they've witnessed both his, his, bur his burial, his baptism, and his resurrection. And ultimately is the call of God upon their life. The apostles, speaking of foundations, the Bible describes in the book of Revelation, amen, of, of this heavenly place to go to someday, that each of the foundations, it has 12 foundations, the New Jerusalem, each of them had the name of an apostle that is inscribed upon the foundation. And so they were not just good for Jesus' age, they are good for our age as well. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 4, whenever they spoke that, they were speaking that to a church that they had given them some apostles and prophets and teachers and pastors and so on and so forth. And so many times an apostle had, had uh, uh, control is not really the word I'm looking for, but they had jurisdiction, if you will, over a particular area or region. As a matter of fact, we see some of the apostles in Scripture. Paul himself even testified that he was an apostle to a certain group of people. He said that I, I, I'm an apostle of the Gentiles. And we see that he was very effective in, in being so. And the thing, the title or the office of apostle, again, this is not something necessarily conferred by man, but it comes from God. Speaking of this in Romans, the Bible says, by whom, speaking of Jesus Christ, we receive grace and apostleship. Amen. The commissioning comes from him. And then there is the prophets within this hierarchy, if you will, of church government and within the body. Prophets, divinely inspired, commissioned people of God for a purpose to communicate something specific, a specific message to God's people. We see this even in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets, what oftentimes they prefaced their words with, which were not their words, but the word of the Lord is, and the word of the Lord came unto me saying. Right? They had a specific message to God's people. And a prophet, no doubt, is, is operating within the gift of the Spirit, but even other gifts of the Spirit, for instance, like a word of knowledge and a word of wisdom, are very important to the role and the office of a prophet. Now, a prophet, we find, modern day and before, a prophet does a, a couple of different things. They foretell or predict, and they also foretell, which means they proclaim. And with that being the case, uh, when we look at the word prophecy, prophecy means both to tell the future and also tell forth the word of the Lord. In that sense of telling forth of the word of the Lord, every preacher, pastor, person that carries the word as an oracle of God is in that sense a prophet of God because they are proclaiming the word, which is a specified message, proclaiming the word of the Lord. And so every time we open the book of the word and we preach and we teach that, we are being prophetic. In some instances, even more so than others, because there's things that we're speaking that's not even yet come to pass yet that God's word says will. All right. And so the, the role of the prophet was very important throughout the New Testament scripture. We read in Antioch, there were the prophets of, 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 of Judas and of, of Silas. We read in Jerusalem. Some of you will remember reading about Agabus, the prophet. All right. And we read that that Philip, uh, the daughters of Philip, the evangelist, four women, uh, the Bible said, who prophesied even in Caesarea. And so we see this throughout the New Testament scripture. Amen. Prophets, though, are not just willy-nilly out here doing their own thing. Quote, unquote, shouldn't be. All right. They're under divine authority and government as well. 
The Bible even tells us in the use of the gift of prophecy that as one prophesies, there's two or three that judge. They are subjected to judgment even within the scripture, within the word of the Lord. And you judge a prophet according to the Old Testament. You judge a prophet according to the truthfulness of their words. Two ways. If what they predict doesn't come to pass, you can mark that as a false prophet. Now, I do want to say this before someone gets way out there. Sometimes prophecies come forth with conditions. If such and such, then such and such. If your then never came, maybe it's because your if wasn't met. Okay. okay. Uh, Shoo. Man, it felt dark cloud and it's, you know, raining, I know, outside today. But nonetheless, so we want to be careful in that aspect. But another aspect as well, if the word that they are proclaiming does not harmonize with the word of God, if there is a discrepancy between their word and God's word, you better go with God's word. And you better mark, mark that and watch that and be careful. Amen. But we do, listen, folks, that doesn't, just because people misuse a gift doesn't mean that you throw the gift away. All right? Just because there might be a misapplication does not mean you throw it away. Uh, should there be training? Yes. Should there be uh, some direction given? Yes, absolutely. But that doesn't mean we just don't want no prophecy then in church. No, it is important. It's vital. It's necessary. It's ordained of God to be a part of the body of Christ. And so we thank the Lord for the gift of prophecy and the prophets within the church. There is evangelist as well. Uh, the word evangelist comes from a Greek word, which literally means a preacher or proclaimer of the gospel. Of course, the gospel notably being the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so many times an evangelist is preaching and carrying the gospel to areas perhaps it's never been before, to people that have not heard it uh, before. Uh, but their, their focal point is not necessarily toward the church, but it's toward the world. All right? Uh, you evangelize the world. You're proclaiming the gospel to those that unbelieve with God unbelieving that perhaps that they will believe upon the Lord and the work that he did upon Calvary. Not only that, the Bible speaks in Scripture that there is the work of an evangelist, meaning that a pastor or a teacher, a saint, an apostle might also occasionally do the work of an evangelist, and that is taking the gospel to someone that has not had the gospel taken to them before. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 4 and verse number 5, but watch thou in all things endure afflictions, Paul tells Timothy, and do the work of an evangelist. Now, Timothy happens to also be the pastor of the church at Ephesus, but Paul tells him to do the work of an evangelist. What's he saying? Share the death, burial, and resurrection with those that know it not. Amen. And so we have that responsibility for that matter, all of us at one time or another to do the work of an evangelist, to witness, to testify, amen, and spread the gospel in the way that we can do that. Then there is within the structure of the church pastors, of course, translated from the Greek word, which literally means a shepherd. Many times you see this back and forthness of a pastor being a shepherd, a shepherd being a, past, a pastor. And Jesus even referred to his followers as sheep, right? He spoke of himself as being the good shepherd and them being his sheep. And the, the symbolism then is there. And then as a shepherd leads sheep, cares for sheep, feeds sheep, that a pastor should feed and care and lead then the flock that God has given him and put him over. All right. And so I, I want to look at something real quickly, if you will, uh, denoting what some of the characteristics should be, responsibilities should be of a shepherd from Ezekiel chapter 34. I'm going to read 10 verses. I know that's a little, you know, a thick clunk there, a chunk of scripture. The Bible says, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and saying to them, thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds. Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Ye eat the fat, ye clothe you with the wool, ye kill them that are fed, but ye feed not the flock. He's saying the shepherd needs to be feeding the flock. Look now, the disease ye have not strengthened. This is the Lord bringing a little guidance, correction, if you will, to the shepherds. He said the disease ye have not strengthened, 
Neither have you healed that which was sick. Neither have you bound up that which was broken. Neither have you brought again that which was driven away. Neither have you sought that which was lost. But with force and with cruelty you have ruled them. He says, and they were scattered because there is no shepherd. It's one thing to have a title. It's another thing to function according to the title. So there there is no shepherd. They became meat to all the beasts of the field. And when they when they were scattered, in other words, there is there is some injury that's taken place to the sheep because they have a shepherd in name only and not in function. All right. He says, my sheep wandered all throughout the mountains upon every high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth and none did search or seek after them. God says they're scattered everywhere, but no one has no concern. Where's the shepherd? Therefore, ye shepherds hear the word of the Lord. He said, as I live, saith the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became meat to every beast of the field because there was no shepherd, neither did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and fed not my flock. Therefore, O ye shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my flock at their hand. Why? Because they're the ones that have been set in that place responsible for them and cause them to cease from feeding the flock. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves anymore for I will deliver my flock from their mouth that they may not be meat for them. And so God is very intentional about the role of the shepherd and how he should function in, in, in response to the sheep. All right. And as a matter of fact, if you continue reading Ezekiel, God says that I'll become their shepherd and I'll do for them what was negligent on your part. I will do for them what was negligent for the shepherd's supposed to protect them, of course, from predatory animals. They're, they're supposed to watch and guard, if you will, them. Listen, guarding them from predatory animals takes two folds, too. And I say this as a pastor. It's not just keeping the dangerous animal from them, but it's keeping the sheep from the dangerous animal as well. That's a a two-way path, a two-way street. And so as as the chief leader, if you will, of a flock, that pastor may teach and preach and uh, counsel, correct, admonish, right? This is a strong word. It's not a dirty word, though. Rebuke, all right? Guide all the long with the spirit of long-suffering and love in the process of doing so. And so uh, the pastor is integral then to the body of the church. Then we have also in this dynamic and structure, teachers. Thank the Lord for our teachers. They are commissioned to instruct the body. They are commissioned to instruct the church in scriptural doctrine and in biblical principles found in the word of the Lord and how to apply those things to the here and now our daily lives. Teachers are great of of giving application of this is where this scripture fits in your life. They have been commissioned to teach. Amen. As a matter of fact, the disciples, even the New Testament, the Bible speaks that they cease not to teach and to preach daily. Amen. Among the crowds where they found themselves. The Bible speaks about, and whether you're teacher, preacher, if you're handling the word of God in any sense, that we must be people that rightly divide. The word of truth. And so that is important. And teachers needs to be an ongoing thing. Uh, And this is a responsibility for pastors and teachers of today. We need to be teaching other teachers in a next generation. We got to be duplicating teachers. We got to be duplicating them. That's why whenever Paul told Timothy, he says, you find some people commit this to faithful men. And he was wanting him to establish some Teachers beyond himself. Amen. And so as teachers, sometimes uh, you kind of got to go with the ebb and the flow. You know, we have teachers that teach our our young kids in the back and they bring the sincere milk of the word of the Lord to those that are young. And then we got different divisions. You sit in our adult class and hopefully we have a little bit more stronger meat. And then when you have a mixed body, you try to give milk and meat. And let me tell you, it's a challenge sometimes to go the full spectrum of everybody that is there. And don't always get it right, but we attempt to do so. But teachers then also, it must be understood that teachers, in many regards, are example. You don't always have to teach to open your mouth or by opening your mouth. 
Teachers are teachers by example. James 3 and 1 says, My brethren, be not many masters, which is literally instructors or teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. What does that mean? When you put your, when you, not put yourself, but when you're in a row of a teacher or some aspect similar to that, um, greater scrutiny comes with the responsibility and the privilege. Greater scrutiny comes with that. And so true teachers must model and example what they're teaching. I know that goes without saying the old saying used to be you practice what you preach. Well, there's a, yeah, there is truth in that. You practice, you try. Does that mean that you're perfect? No, but that means you do put a good shoulder to the grindstone of practicing what you teach and what you preach. You try to be a role model, follow the role model of Christ. All right. None of us, again, if you're going to put a mark of a perfection on anybody that's any type of church leadership, already prepare yourself because you're going to be disappointed if you put that type of expectation upon a human being. They will fail you. They will make a mistake. They'll have an attitude when they shouldn't have. Their tone will be wrong. It's going to happen. All right. But God, even with their imperfections, have placed them in that place with some grand design and order and purpose that may go beyond what we can even possibly understand at the placement of now. And so God's ministers are his gift in reality, his gift of government for the church he gave, the Bible says, those apostles, he gave them. It was God's gift to the church. And this is real weird because I'm a pastor and I'm teaching this lesson. It feels weird just personally. But God, those, those, those dynamics that he sets within the body of Christ like that, those are God's gift to his body. And, and we, we really, it, it does us well to accept them as they have been given, as gifts from God. They're for the benefit and for the blessing of the body of Christ. Uh, ministry is not placed in the church, over the church, or over different people in the church to be some type of hardcore, militant-minded type of people, always prohibiting, you know, happiness and smiles and laughter and restrictions. And No, 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 not at all. Uh, but they do need a certain bit of thick-skinnedness to them. Uh, a, a, a certain bit of uh, allegiance, of course, to their higher up, so to speak. And so they're God's gift to his people. Again, for the edifying of the body of Christ, right? Uh, for the work of the ministry, right? Perfecting the saints. And, and many times, and I look this different ways, some people say, well, the apostles, preachers, the apostles, teachers, and all these things, they're given for the perfecting of the saints, the edifying the body of Christ, the work of the ministry. Uh, many ways I see that they are given for the perfecting of the saints, and the saints help with the edification and the work of the ministry aspect. But the prophets and the teachers are still aiding in that by through their teaching of the saints, all right, through the perfecting of the saints. And one reason why around here at the First Apostolic Church, you know, we try to bring in different voices at times to minister to us, albeit, you know, apostles or prophets, whatever, evangelists, because it takes the full conglomeration of those individuals for the perfection of the body. And I don't, I don't believe I can accomplish that on my own. I need the other voices of these offices uh, to come in alongside me as a pastor and to help with the perfecting the saints for overall edification and the work of the ministry. Amen. And in that, uh, one office should not be intimidated by another or jealous of another. All right? Because we all have a common goal. And we all have a common purpose. And so even within the body of Christ, there's these other ministerial titles and offices that we read of in Scripture. For instance, Bishop. I know we call him Bishop McGee, but Bishop is an absolute office within the New Testament Scripture. It comes from a Greek word that means superintendent or one who inspects is its meaning. One who inspects. And so thank the Lord for Bishop McGee, elder, you know, uh, more, I, I say this all respect, Dad, but older in his age, all right, than I am, that pastored this church for that matter before I did. And, and he's like, you know, he would never want to be called. He's the presiding bishop of the first apostolic church and, and his wife alongside him. And what he does then, and I've always told this, what he does, he manages the affairs of the church that affect the church. In other words, as a young man wet behind the ears of a pastor, if he would see me leading off the path that is true and right, 
He has every obligation and right to talk to me, have a conversation with me or the church as a whole. That, you know what, I, I see something here that I'm, I, I just don't think is quite right. And he can call us, he's inspecting, he's looking, he's superintending. He may, in many respects, a bishop is a pastor of pastors. He's a pastor of pastors. So, you know, we have Brother Mason, myself, you know, administrative pastor and me. He's a pastor of pastors. We need somebody like that, you know, in our lives. And we read about uh, their character. We read about uh, their qualifications in the book of Timothy and also in, in, in Titus. And we read about the descriptions also of elders and presbyters and deacons. All of these uh, seem to be somewhat interchangeable titles in the scripture. But again, they are a role of minister, ministerial leadership. The Bible describes them uh, that they should be full of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And commissioned, of course, to assist the pastors and the apostles and the prophets to be assistants to come alongside and help and aid in that regard. If you'll remember in Acts chapter number six, the disciples are trying to serve the Grecians in the mills, and but they said we need to seek out seven men full of the Holy Ghost that they may see to this that we can give ourselves into the word of God and prayer. And so they found those seven that was full of the Holy Ghost. They came alongside them, took care of that, that aspect of serving the Grecians so that those disciples could focus on the word and prayer. And so I thank God absolutely for all of our, we, we, we may not given you the title or office above around your name, elder or deacon or so on and so forth, but we have such like people that come along uh, the pastoralship of this church and help assist, all right, uh, so that we can do the whole work of the Lord in all the different divisions that it leads from and goes to. Uh, there's areas of administration and organization that people that help us assist with them, areas of outreach and evangelism, that people help assist with and thank God for those people. Amen. So as ministers and as people in these offices, we have then a responsibility to God and we have a responsibility to the people that we serve. All right. The Bible says, for instance, Jesus sent forth his disciples in Matthew 28, 19 and verse 20. He said unto them, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you all the way, even to the end of the world. We have a responsibility, ministerial leadership in the church have a responsibility to teach, of course, the flock of God. But this is important, teaching them to observe. All things whatsoever God has commanded us. All right? And so his word is a very good tool of the things that he has expected of us or commanded us. So we teach them to observe. What, what, what's observe? To obey. We teach them to obey those things that have been commanded us. Uh, Paul even told Timothy concerning those things. He said these things that you need to command and teach when he spoke about those things, those things where you, you need to command and teach words of faith. You can read in, in 1 Timothy 4 these things. You need to teach them words of faith. You need to teach and command good doctrine. These are things that Paul spoke to Timothy. You need to command and teach them to exercise into God, godliness. All right? And so as, as, as leaders in the church, in the government of the church, we want to help people and teach them to observe. We don't just want to teach ideas and concepts to you, uh, quote-unquote rules and commands. We want to teach you to the place that you observe and obey them. And that's where, and I say this with all diplomacy and love and sincerity, that's where the rub takes place sometimes. Sometimes people don't have no problem you telling them something, but they have a problem you inspecting about whether or not you followed up on what they were told. Amen. Glory. Make me sweat here today. Nonetheless, and so that is important. That is, that is our responsibility to the saints. Amen. To do so. And so, of course, we, we baptize believers, people, 
Amen. We baptize them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We preach the word to the flock of God. Paul told Timothy what? He said, preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. It's important that he gave him the right material for preaching. Preach the word. Right? We don't have to go around and preach our own little personal stories. Well, glory. Preach the word. Preach the word. Uh, every believer, in some essence, is called to share the word, you know, to the lost. We are, but we, as, as people in the offices of the church, are not just responsible for preaching it. Watch me here. Not just for preaching it to the world, but we got to preach it to the church. Not just to those who need saved, but to those who are already saved. we got to get out the epistles of Ephesians and Galatians and start talking to the church how to remain saved, right? How to keep that. Uh, for that matter, whenever uh, John writes the book of Revelation and the Lord is speaking to him, we read Revelations 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches of Asia. The scripture always starts out before it goes to each church, Smyrna, Ephesians, whatever. He says that the Spirit spoke to the angel of the church. The angel of the church literally is the messenger of the church, if you will, the pastor of the church. Given instruction about, you know, I have a few things against you. Or given, uh, you know, pleasing words about you've done this right, that right. And yet then the angel of the church, or if you will, the pastor of the church many times has to take that unto the saints. All right. Amen. Because it's come to them from God. Here, the other aspect of pastors and teachers and things in that row, it is our responsibility unto the saints. I've touched on this a little bit, but to correct, to reprove, to rebuke. Timothy, whenever Paul told Timothy to preach the word and be instant in season and out of season, he didn't stop there. He went on and said, reprove, rebuke, exhort with, important word. Now, for every pastor that's in leadership, with all long suffering and doctrine. And so as we do the reproving, we need to be long suffering in doing that. All right. And we also need to have our basis of our doctrine for doing it. All right. When we reprove and rebuke and exhort, we do it with these things. And so we, we must use sound doctrine. And, and, you know, the Bible talks about sound doctrine and good doctrine. And there's only one thing that comes to my mind. If you've got to put that type of adjective of good doctrine in there, that means there must be some bad doctrine around. If you've got to distinguish it by saying sound doctrine, then there must be some unsound doctrine around. And so we want to be propagators of good doctrine, sound doctrine, all right? And for that matter, look at Titus 2 and verse number 15. He says, these things... Speaking of sound doctrine, speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. When you rebuke, you correct by word. Literally Greek, when you rebuke, you convict or you bring to light. Sometimes that's all rebuking is. It's saying brings to light something maybe that is skewed from where it needs to be. Just shine the light on it. Doesn't take a 50-minute speech. Sometimes it, just, sometimes it just takes bringing it to light. And there's other times it takes 50 minutes. But nonetheless, we do it with long suffering. We do it with long suffering. And so, pastors, peoples in those, we are the voice of correction and reproof for the church today. Um, I don't know of any time that we would do a public rebuke. You right there sitting in the audience among everybody, blah, blah, blah. You know, we'll do that behind closed doors and privately. Now, there, it may feel like that sometimes through the preaching of God's word as though something's pinning you. And, you know, people jokingly say as they go out the door, you're stepping on my toes today, you know. And, and so the, it may came, come in that form or in that fashion, all right. But we got, to, we got to do this. And one reason why we have to do this is because regardless who you are or what member in the body you are, you have some type of influence over another member in some way. And so if we leave matters untouched, unaffected, whether you're purposely doing it or not, you're having influence over someone's life. And so we, we got to be diligent concerning that. Let me just go just a little bit further and I'll stop here today. We got to exhort the flock. I didn't want to leave you on just correction. We got to exhort 
the flock as well, Paul told Timothy. And when we exhort, that means that we are responsible, uh, have a spiritual duty and responsibility of exhorting, arousing, if you will, uh, the, the flock, amen, to the correct motives and the correct behavior. You know, there's two ways you can do it. You can correct them to it or you encourage them to it. And sometimes if one doesn't work, you got to try the other. Sometimes both don't work, but bless God, you, you, you try both nonetheless. And so you got to rouse the flock. The Bible tells us, Paul told Timothy, he said, give attendance, or if you will, apply yourself, he said, to exhortation. He said, to pay attention to exhortation. Sometimes we got to challenge people with, with motivating them, encouraging them, inspiring them to good works, inspiring them to holy lifestyles, right? Sometimes as pastors, we got to ignite the flame and the zeal back inside some that's died or grown dormant within their spirit. We're trying to enthusiastically inspire them. And that's probably why sometimes you see, whenever we are in the mode of preaching as apostolics, why there's high, high-spirited, exuberant preaching sometimes, we're trying to be in that exhortation mode of encouraging and motivating and inspiring, amen, the people uh, to transmit their passions where they need to be, to be enthusiastic concerning the things of God just as much as they are enthusiastic about some of the secular things of the world. So we try to inspire that in Jesus' name. I did not get through this, and I apologize, but, you know, there's always next week. Amen. God bless you this morning. Amen. As we continue next week, we'll talk about your pastors and leaders, and we'll definitely get through it. Amen. Then. Amen. But the dynamic of the church, once we have finished concerning pastors and leaders, we're going to go into another lesson about the Christian family. And so that, that will be very uh, vital to our development as Christians. Or, you know, sometimes we, re, we rediscover or go back and touch on things over and over again. Because as anybody knows, you start out as a Christian family, you start out even just with a marriage, right? And there's sometimes that can grow cold. There's, it's warmer and cooler at different times in life. And so we touch back upon these things because they are not always, if you want, will, the stellar example of what they should be. And so sometimes we just come with exhortation, fan the flame, so that we get these things back under us as they should be. I'm going to pray this morning. Please come back tonight. We'll be here ministering the word of the Lord in, to, in, in this evening's service. I'm going to pray this morning that God would help us. Hallelujah. That we would just fall in love with this order that he has within the body of Christ. Father, I come to you this morning. I'm so grateful, Lord, today unto you. I'm thankful, God, for the order and the organization, God, that you have brought. Into the Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.